This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and we're welcoming Dr. Elisa Song back to the stage on day two of the Bioceuticals 6th Bioceuticals Research Symposium. Let's say Bioceuticals any more times anyway. Welcome Elisa, <laughs> how are you? Good, how are you? That was a really great lecture this morning. Thank you. And very thought-provoking. I've got too many questions to go through this morning. <laughs> but one of the first ones, you and I have discussed in the podcast before, I've got a little bit of a, a bent towards this microbial programming of yep. the infant gut yep. with these things called segmented filamentous bacteria, mm -hmm. SFMs. And programming, if you've got a genetic type towards autoimmunity, it will, it will program TH17. What do you think the facility is of these pathobionts, symbionts, and you know, then we get the, the um, probiotics what do you think is the spectrum? Are we treating everything good or everything bad? Is it, is it us treating a weed like a herb or a herb like a weed? You know, that judgment. Do you mean Do you mean in infancy or do you mean once the pans or pandas has, has started? Well, I, th I think the relevance is probably once you get a diagnosis or, yeah. or a suspicion of what's going yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think when you're treating with antimicrobials, you're kind of blasting everything, though. So it's hard to really target, you know, just the pathogenic flora versus and protect the beneficial flora, mm. which is why you know supplementing with probiotics is so important in keeping the gut healed and you know why we see so much gut yeast dysbiosis as yeah. a result right um so i mean i guess my preference would be to use a broad spectrum herbal antimicrobial because we can do less damage with that they also have their own sort of antioxidant properties and anti-inflammatory properties. So I don't know if that answers your questions, but I don't know that we can really target so much. So I guess along with those, you know, I'm noticing the more we're learning about these autoimmune type conditions yep. or, or neuro behavioral conditions in kids, there seems to be this cross-linking with something like SIBO, you know, which, which tends to sort of, we target the gut. Yes, yeah. How do you differentiate? Do you look for these accessory symptoms like, you know, the slouching, the sitting in a W position, the handwriting? Do you tend to look for these clues to go, hang on, it's more than just SIBO? Or? Yes, and I look for the, and mostly the neuropsychiatric symptoms, right? The anxiety, the behavioral symptoms, the sensory issues, the, um, the motor symptoms like the tics, any regressions that are going on. I mean, I am finding more and more kids with SIBO, but SIBO is challenging to detect in adults, and mm. it's incredibly challenging to detect in children, right? I mean, a three-hour breath test is nearly impossible for most kids to do, and then you have to wonder about the accuracy. Um, so I might do some, uh, you know, SIBO treatments. The herbal regimen, right, that's been studied for SIBO, um, you know, kind of an essential oil blend and an herbal blend, they are very challenging for kids to take the who can't swallow pills. So right. we're kind of stuck, right? I mean, the essential oils, to open up those capsules and get a child to take, you know, I, I don't think I've had much luck with that. The herbal antimicrobials a little bit more, um, but then you're left with trying another antibiotic like rifaximin, uh, which isn't necessarily as effective. So it's tough, but I do think SIBO we need to look at because that also is very underdiagnosed in kids. You mentioned um, the use of hubazine A as mm -hmm. an anticholinesterase inhibitor. Have you ever looked at any other herbs? Uh, like you know, I was 
just browsing it, it meant I saw that even herbs like caledonium, um, there was um, the lotus flower was another one that stuck out. Yeah. It yeah. also has this sort of action. Do you ever employ these herbs as well? Do you, you know, find better, worse? Yeah, you know, I think I started, so most of the herbs that I use are not just in isolation. It's hard to find necessarily um, isolated extracts of cuprazine A or Chinese skullcap. There are some manufacturers that do that, but often they're in combination in, you know, neurologic support supplements. So I might find cuprazine A with um, mimosa, right, or um, with Caledonium. So there may, it may be combined with other things. Yeah. Um, so I look to see what are the major ingredients that I want to hit. And then, you know, if I'm not familiar with the other herbs, then I'll talk to the manufacturers. Yep. We have some great herbal companies in the States where um, they're happy to tell you why they put those herbs together for their synergistic effects or for their additive effects. And again, on another line, phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine. Yep. You know, there was sort of this hesitation early on about using phosphatidylserine. I've used this with great effect. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love that. Yeah, compound. I love phosphatidylserine too. <laughs> well, what about lecithin? There's, there's this interchange between the, the lecithins, the phosphatidylserine, inositol, yeah. yep. choline. Yep. Yep. Um, do you use either one or the other? Do you tend to use the PS more because it's there or what do you prefer? You know, I, I tend to use the PS more initially because, uh, because of its benefit in reducing excess cortisol levels and just reducing that fight or flight response. Yep. And I've had kids not just with pans and panis, but with behavioral problems in school or ADHD have significant improvements in their impulsivity or their aggression or you know, their, their other symptoms just with phosphatidylserine. Now, I do use phosphatidylcholine as well because that's so kind of neuroprotective. So it's not an either or, but typically when I see kids, we're working first on this behavioral, neurosensory, neuropsychiatric component. Um, so I'll start with the phosphatidylserine. And I love phosphatidylserine before sleep too. It yeah. really helps with that kind of mind racing, difficulty falling asleep because there's just too much going on. Um, and so once you can restore that sleep too, a lot of the behavioral symptoms improve. What about things like L-theanine? Do you employ that sort of stuff? I do. Yeah? Theanine, GABA, um, inositol, you know, we'll try, you know, depending on what's going on with the kid. Um, you know, theanine sometimes for some kids will actually make them too drowsy during the day, so we might use that at nighttime. Yeah. Um, but it, it really depends on the kid. And sometimes I'll have children on theanine and GABA, or they don't do well with GABA, perhaps because of, you know, sort of a glutamate response or you know, they'll do great with inositol. So we just, we, I, you know, I hate to call it trial and error, but we try to find what works best for yeah. each kid. And dosing considerations. Do you, do you use any standard formula for dosing w with regards to weight volume of, of yeah. the patient, or do you just go half or something You know, like with, with PEDS, and, and I've, I teach um, pediatric practitioners in the States, also pediatric functional medicine, and uh, there are many different dosage rules that you can follow. There's no clear dosage guidelines for kids, unfortunately. And, um, you know, what I'll typically do, I believe it's called Clark's formula, is go by weight, right? right? Because you have some, you know, very hefty toddlers and some very slim, yeah. <laughs> you know, elementary school kids. Yeah, right. So we'll go by weight. And if we take, you know, the standard dose to be, you know, for a 150 pound adult, um, then I'll figure out what percentage of that that um, weight a child is, and they give that percentage of supplement or the herb or whatever we're dosing. 
one last question before I throw to the audience, and that is something that confuses me. Um, Low-dose naltrexone is an opioid receptor inhibitor. How does it reduce... Um, how do you get a reduction in pain in fibromyalgia when you're reducing the opioid action? Well, so in those very low doses, it's not, it has less of that effect and more of an effect on the immune cells. Uh-huh. So that's why it has to be low doses right. and sometimes tiny little doses. And the dosage doesn't seem to really, um, doesn't seem to really matter what weight the child is because I have some teenagers who are on one milligram I have some seven-year-olds who may be on three milligrams. The highest I'll go is about three, three and a half milligrams. Um, but again, with that, I just start very low, depending on the sensitivity of a child. I mean, you have some patients who are extremely sensitive. You give a tiny little bit of a dose, and they have huge reactions. Other kids are like rocks, and you yeah. can you know, throw yeah. a bunch at them, and they don't really move too much. So for those really sensitive kids, I'll titrate by 0.1 milligram up. Um, for, for the kids who aren't as sensitive, I'll start at 0.5 and move up in 0.5 milligram increments. And do you, sorry, <laughs> one last question. <laughs> and do you, ever, do you ever titrate that up with regards to, or, or space the dosing? I guess where I'm wondering here is, you know, if the cortisol response goes up at night, we feel pain more at night. We feel sicker at night, you know, our colds. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you ever use that? Do you ever space that out with kids? Or? No, so with the low soundtrackstone, at least... What we're, we're finding in the studies is that it really has to be given at bedtime. Right, that's so, it. So, yeah, so we give it at bedtime. You know, some kids are going to bed at 7, which is a little early, but, you know, we just get it as close to the evening as possible. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Is there any questions from the audience that people would like answered? One at the front here. Thank you. Just wondering about if a kid gets worse ticks or their ticks seem to get worse uh, with treatment of strep that's been proven on a bioscreen, for example, whether that implicates that there would be yeast or if it's a die-off reaction or uh, you so, know, what, what you, how you might interpret and think about that. Yeah, that's a great question. So I always, um, I always talk to parents about possible die-off reactions when we start treating any microbe. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll recommend that they ha- take a binder like activated charcoal, um, at least in that first week of treatment, um, to minimize the die-off reactions. Because during that time, of course, you can have a worsening of ticks or OCD behaviors or rages. But that die-off reaction shouldn't be lasting for weeks, right? And so if after two, three weeks, they're still having a worsening, then I think, could it be yeast dysbiosis? Am I missing a viral component? Is there a new trigger? Um, So I would look at the timing of it and see how long it lasts for. For the anxiety part, what in order do you tend to try the various things to calm the child down? Because you've mentioned a whole lot of alternatives. Yeah, so again, phosphorylserine is probably one of my first go-tos. Before magnesium, before inositol? Well, so before inositol usually. Um, Magnesium, I typically have patients on magnesium from the very beginning. So they're likely already on magnesium because magnesium is so calming, except for your child who got a little worse with it. Um, But but in general, because that's part of really optimizing their nutritional status. So I I really want to bump their magnesium levels up to as high as possible. So yes, so so yes, fish omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D and magnesium are going to be my first lines to really help with the calming. Any other questions? Just a a quick one on using um, activated charcoal. I'm mm-hmm. just wondering about the practicalities of that. So, of course, it has to be given on an empty stomach, right, um, in order to bind not the food you're taking, not the supplements you're taking, but any of the, the toxins that are being released by the microbes. So um, at least 
I'll tell parents at least half an hour before food or an hour after food. They can take it with a little bit of food. I mean, in the emergency rooms when I used to work and kids came in with accidental ingestions, we would mix it with a little bit of chocolate pudding, right, to mask that black, you know. But you can mix it with a little bit of applesauce, mix it with a little bit of drink. A little bit is fine. You just don't want a whole meal in their stomach. There was one last question just at the back here. Yes, I was trying to get the lithium orotate in Australia and I couldn't really find anything apart from one link in one uh, particular webinar that I listened to. And is that the only link in the world? Well, you don't know which one I'm referring to, of course, but um, where, how, how have you actually used it? How much of it? And have you used specifically lithium orotate? I have used specifically lithium orotate, right? Lithium is a naturally occurring mineral. We're not, so when I say lithium to parents, a lot of them think, oh my gosh. Lithium carbonate. Yeah, I mean, lithium isn't that scary, right? But we're using, um, really, we're using replacement doses. We're, we're using more of that physiologic dose to help support the nervous system. So I'll use, you know, for kids, uh, the smallest uh, milligram doses that I've been able to find is five milligrams. Um, so, but for little kids, I might open the capsule up and just do a pinch to start with, or you know, a quarter of the capsule, um, or half a capsule. Um, but most kids will, will end up around maybe five to ten milligrams. Um, if we're not seeing any improvements at, when they're at ten milligrams, then I'll typically stop. What are you looking for in terms of improvement? Is there a specific link with lithium that you say with mood. those kids? Yeah. Well, oh, to know which kids that I give lithium. No, it's more. I mean, that's it's not one of my first lines. But if they're really having trouble with even once we've treated the infections and they're on anti-inflammatories, if they're still having emotional lability, um, then then I'll try uh, the low-dose lithium. And do you combine it with the uh, hair analysis test or is that unreliable? Because they do often say it? the heavy metals are reliable, but the other ones are not so reliable on a hair mineral analysis. What no, is the I'll thing just, with lithium? I'll, tr I'll just try it, right? Because there's not great ways to assess how adequate your lithium levels are. Um, you know, the blood tests are really to, to assess for toxicity, which I'm not concerned about, you know, at those low doses. So I'll just, uh, I'll just try it presumptively. Orotate such a large molecule and indeed it may be part, partly due to the orotic acid bound with the yep. lithium that you're actually getting the positive action because yeah, orotic sure. acid goes into it, the energy cycle. That's indeed why, you know, like Frank Rosenfeld of Alfred Hospital uses magnesium orotate in cardiac patients, not because of the magnesium, because of the orotic acid. Um, so the lithium and the, the orotate might have some um, specific action with regards to energy and mitochondrial yep. energy. Yep. Yeah, because what's attached to the mineral determines where it's delivered in the cell, is that correct? Partly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, everybody. This is FX Medicine. Join us later. You can find all the videos from the FX Medicine Live stage at the 6th Bioceuticals Research Symposium in Melbourne by going to the FX Medicine website and clicking on Industry Insights under the Community tab.